Hello and welcome to UK Wildlife Podcast. I'm Neil Phillips and we're joined today by Dr. Isla Hodgson. Hello, Isla. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. You? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks for having me on. Great to have you on. You've been on the list to come on for quite a while and I finally got around to contacting you and you've come straight on, so it's great. Right, so Isla, would you like to introduce yourself? I can, yeah. So I wear a couple of different hats. So the one I'll be wearing for this episode is obviously my sharky hat. So I was a marine scientist. I've got a master's degree in marine science. And I'm also a wildlife guide for Baskin Shock Scotland out here on the west coast of Scotland. So I'm lucky enough every summer during the shark season to take people out to see these incredible animals and take them swimming with the Baskin shark as well, which is which is really, really cool. And I'm also an education ambassador for the Save Our Seas Foundation too, which means that I do a lot of science communication stuff for them around sharks. But my other hat is I am also a research scientist as well. So I study something slightly different, but still, still kind of related. So I, I more study sort of like the kind of social social and political aspects of conservation but yeah yeah that's me in a in a nutshell <laughs> regular listeners will know that we start with our recent wildlife sightings so as the guest Isley, you get to go first and i'm pretty sure from where you live on the west coast of scotland i'm going to be very jealous to these sightings yeah so i, d- I didn't know whether to mention this because we were literally just talking about this before we hit record and you mentioned that you've never seen one but the other day we had a sea eagle over the top of the garden, which was very cool. Wow. White-tailed sea eagle, which was which was awesome. Yeah, that is pretty cool. I mean, there are the ones released in the Isle of Wight. They are flying over Essex every so often, but I haven't managed to see one yet. You oh. never know. And they're introducing them to North Norfolk, so that's both sides covered, so eventually one should come within <laughs> <laughs> range of me if I don't get up to Scotland first. But, uh, that would be awesome. Um, I never thought I'd hear the day that Sea Eagle would fly over Essex. Literally, I think within a few weeks and releasing it, one went all the way. It actually flew across central London at one point, and I think someone spotted it. There was a protest going on, that, and someone looked <gasps> up and saw it over the Houses of Parliament. I mean, how amazing is that? Wow. I still think that's cool. Mind you, I never thought I'd see the day that I'd see buzzers every day. Uh-huh, um, yeah. Which brings me, brings me on nicely to my sightings, I suppose. Mm-hmm. At work, I'm actually getting bored of the noise of a young buzzard that just keeps calling and calling <laughs> and calling. And it's not even that lovely eagle-like call. It's just sort of like a moany, it's like a whining teenager trying to find its parents, I think. Um, even worse is a sparrowhawk in the woods that I've glimpsed three or four times. And that keeps calling away as well. At the weekend, I went to a local brownfield site and there were scorpion flies everywhere, which is, well, as far as I'm aware, it's unusual in August. And I did a little bit of stream dipping at work today and the streams aren't as lovely as yours up in Scotland. But I got a few nice caddis flies, uh, two types of stickleback and yeah, all nice stuff. Oh, loads of water crickets. I love them. I'll do a podcast on them. For those who don't know... They're sort of forgotten. Everyone knows pond skaters. Sometimes call them water boatmen, but let's not go into that. The topic for another podcast. Um, <laughs> typical me. I'm... Are they not supposed... Sorry, people on your podcast are probably going to yell at this, but are they not supposed to be called water boatmen? I always called them water boatmen. No. <gasps> oh, oh, well, no. Ah, are you talking about the ones that are under the water or on the surface? The ones that are on the surface. But is it... I've got little... Hop... Let's stick out legs. Yeah. The eyes are doing a brilliant impression. We actually, got, I've actually got video on recording for once. Yeah, <laughs> now, the ones that swim like they're rowing under the water are boatmen. The ones that sort of jump across the top with their legs spread out the water are pond skaters or water striders or water skaters. Right. But not water boatmen. There you go. Oh, every day is a school day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. See, I'm sure you're going to teach you a lot more about sharks. Go back to the water crickets are things like that's about half the length and a lot chunkier. Uh, they're not crickets, they're actually just related to pond skaters, Geromorpha. I'm going to do a pond skater Geromorpha podcast at some point. I've got like a hundred half-written podcasts. <laughs> I need to do the full-on dive into the scientific literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's going to be a good one, that one. So yeah, pretty good stream dip. So we have got eyes on today to talk about sharks in UK waters. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot more species of shark in British waters than people think, isn't there? Um, there are about 40 plus species of shark and ray in UK waters alone. So in the world, there's like about over 500 species of shark and there's over 600 species of ray. So in total, about over a thousand. 
essentially over 40 of those live on our very own doorstep which is which is super cool yeah that's, it's amazing i think there's that many in just our waters uh-huh. isn't there? yeah so a shark i mean a lot of people don't realize that sharks are actually fish so what is a shark yeah so i think you're exactly right so i think when people think about fish they think about you know the type of fish that we eat so say for example salmon or cod or haddock or something like that but fish in general are just an enormous group of animals there's so many different species but you can split them into two types essentially so roughly one type is the bony fish so they have bones like you or i that consist of calcium and then you've got cartilaginous fish which is what sharks are a part of so if you take your finger and you rub the end of your nose, that's what sharks are made out of. That is cartilage and it tends to be a bit more flexible. It doesn't actually have calcium in them. So actually only their only their teeth and their vertebrae have calcium in them. So that's why in the fossil record, you only typically have shark teeth or, or you know, some places where the cartilage is particularly thick. But yeah, that distinguishes them from other other types of fish is that they're essentially just all made from cartilage and within that massive group you don't just have sharks you've also got rays and skates which are um slightly different in body shape so they're the they're the flat ones they look a little bit like a flat pancake (laughs) and then you've also got the chimeras as well which is a prehistoric really prehistoric group of fish and they look really cool actually so they've got really weird body shapes it's got this little short body and then a super long sort of rat-like tail. And they also have these kind of two, they don't have teeth like your kind of regular great white. They don't have lots of sharp pointy teeth. And they've got two teeth plates that stick out the front, almost like a, almost like rabbit teeth as well. So, so that is basically, basically, long story short, mm. what a shark is, is a cartilaginous fish and not a bony fish. The old bony fish that some people sneer at the term now but for people like us it makes it nice and simple to understand <laughs> so. it does <laughs> it does yeah so i think i read somewhere we get stingrays in british waters is that correct yes yeah <laughs> yeah you can do <laughs> we, we do get the common stingray it's not quite up to the same size as the stingrays that people might be familiar with the kind of ones that Steve Irwin came across with and you know that didn't end well for Steve Irwin so they're not quite no. that big so we do tech we do have them around mainly around the south and around the west the southwest coast of England basically and these common stingrays they're much smaller like I said so the maximum size that you would probably get is about 68 centimeters but they do have obviously this very very long tail which can be about 1.5 times their entire body size. So we do get stingrays, but not to the extent that you would do in places further south, basically, in, in warmer waters. We've got a few questions from listeners, so thanks to everyone mm-hmm. that sent some questions in. And we've kind of covered this one, I think, but at Shepherd Wells, Corvid Crazy Chap, um, whose name I do know, and I've totally forgot off the top of my head his real name, sorry. And he asked, what is the largest we have in the UK waters? Um, I think we mentioned that one already. But more trickily, what is the... Trickily? Is that a word? In a more tricky question? Trickily? trickily. <laughs> it is now a word. I'm, I'm, I'm going to coin that and copyright it. What is the smallest? What is the smallest? So, yeah. So this question, I don't actually know the answer to this question, which I think I'll put my hands up there and I'll say that I don't know everything about sharks. But, you know, it just shows that we do have a huge diversity of sizes you know, within the sharks that we have. So we've just talked about the Baskin shark there, for example, eight to 10 metres in size, but the largest on record was 12.2 metres in size. Absolutely enormous. But then you also have species that people might be more familiar with, which are the, the cat sharks and the dogfish, which tend to be much smaller species of shark. So for example, we have one type of cat shark that is called the mouse cat shark. And the female is about or the maximum size can be as little as 63 centimeters so you know you're talking really really small there but in terms of talking about the species that's species that we find in uk waters it's quite hard to distinguish you know what is what is a species uh, that we find in, in in uk waters because a lot of the smaller species you find you find actually in in very very deep water so i can tell you what the smallest species of shark in the world are um, so I can give you kind of like a bonus fact 
uh, for not knowing what the smallest species of shark in the UK is. So, you know, there's two actually that are kind of vying for the title. So one is the spined pygmy shark, which is found at depths of about 1,600 feet. And the other one is the dwarf lantern shark, which is 8.3 inches. And that's about the same size as the palm of your hand. And they're actually found 928 to 1,140 foot deep. Um, so you're talking really, really deep in the ocean there. They're not found anywhere near us. They're in Colombia and Venezuela. And these are the type of guys where you've only we've only got a couple of records of them, basically. So only one or two specimens have ever, ever been brought up to the surface. But we do know that they have photophores on their belly and photophores on their fins that emit light. So when you live in very deep waters, quite often, you know, the light doesn't go down that far. So you have to make your own, uh, basically. So... So yeah, so that's the smallest species of shark in the world, but we do get a huge range of sizes in UK waters as well. Oh, marvellous. So basically, it's probably one of the cat sharks. Probably one of the cat sharks, but there's a full list, just to give the Shark Trust a shout out, there is a full list of all the UK species of shark on their website as well. It's a good old website, that I've added it that earlier. <laughs> it is. But yeah, I know a lot about the largest shark in the world, a lot second largest species of shark in the world, and our largest species of shark. But um, I don't know that much about the smallest, um, so I will have to look that up. It's the opposite end <laughs> to your knowledge, so why should you? Exactly. <laughs> it is, yeah, but really good question. If I do find out the answer to this, I will definitely post it on Twitter. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, I'll look out for that. Let's go on to another question, shall we? Alan James, that's Alan Jett on Twitter. So Alan doesn't actually ask a question. We asked about people's relationship with sharks. Mm-hmm. And he talks about basking sharks coming in close to beaches and then the newspapers go nuts. There was a local Cornish paper published what was clearly a basking shark. <laughs> I think it's in, even in front of the Minak Theatre, whatever it's called, down from Land's End area. Yeah. And I know that basking sharks are seen there quite a lot when there's performances going on. And some fishermen said, I've been here 10 years and I've never seen anything like it. And just from the picture, you can see it's a basking shark. So there is a bit of a... People see a big shark and panic, don't they? There was another story, I think, yeah. of a basking shark coming close and people running from the shore because <laughs> they cleared the water and you're like, mm-hmm. oh... But there is a lot of scaremongering about sharks, in, especially in August every year, isn't there? There is, yeah. And you can, I mean, you can sort of understand it. I understand the place mm. that it comes from. So I think we're going to come on to this a little bit later on. But part of our fear about sharks comes from the fact that we really don't know that much about them. And there's a lot of misinformation out there as well. So the Baskin shark, it is the second largest species of shark in the oceans, as I've already said. And if you imagine the dorsal fin can be up to one meter high so when you see that when you're in the water and you see that on the surface your immediate thought is to panic and um, because of what we've seen from jaws of what you know that how the media has portrayed sharks over the years since jaws as well you see a big shark and you think oh no i'm going to be dinner for this shark and the thing about the baskin shark as well is that it comes from the order Lamniformes, which is the mackerel sharks and it's the same family that white sharks come from and the same family that a lot of predatory sharks come from they've got the same body shape you know when you're under the water and you're looking at a baskin shark coming towards you if it's got its mouth closed it can just look like a giant white shark coming towards you so you can kind of understand why people might have a little bit of of that fear but there's nothing to worry about with the baskin shark so what they're feeding on is a tiny little organism called a copepod which is about one to two millimeters in size and that's all they're interested in is is getting as much of that sort of yummy those yummy copepods as possible because if you think about it an eight to ten meter shark it has to feed on quite a lot of these tiny little organisms to keep itself going so all they're thinking about is 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 where the food is. And if you're a filter feeder, you're you're not a predator with very complex hunting strategies. You don't need to waste a lot of energy on having a big brain. So one of my favourite facts about the Baskin shark is that it has a brain that is about ten centimetres in size in comparison to its you know, its massive body size. So they're really, really not thinking about that much at all apart from where that nearest uh, food source is. So when you're in the water with them, and um, I mean, just to give a bit of background, I work for a company called Baskin Shark Scotland, who operate off the West Coast. And we take people in the water with Baskin Sharks, swimming in the water with Baskin Sharks. And for most of the time, if you're nice and still and quiet and calm, they don't even realise you're there. So that you know, you'll get them going quite closely past you. So I've actually been 
uh, slapped in the face with a tail <laughs> with a tail before they're not really out to seek humans out or to eat humans at all or to hurt you in any way some of the latest media coverage that i've seen seem to focus on the fact that there there was one with a paddle border and the headline was giant sharks around paddle border as if the sharks had all sort of cornered this poor guy like in the middle of the ocean Essentially what happens is you get um, areas where the currents or, you know, the tides have pushed all this plankton or all these copepods into one area and all the sharks are basically having like a feeding frenzy. It's like a free buffet, essentially. So they're all just swimming round in circles, just taking advantage of all this yummy copepods. And it can look like they're just going round in circles. So, you know, a lot of people don't actually know that about the Baskin shark. They don't know that the Baskin shark exists. They just see a massive shark and, and their immediate response is is to panic. And that's due to a lack of, you know, science communication about the Baskin shark itself. They're completely harmless. Because of things like jaws, we've been brought up to think that sharks are kind of basically as soon as you drop in the water, all the sharks are like <gasps> As a human, I must go straight to that area and, you know, just forget exactly what they're doing. Whereas in most cases, even if you're talking about predatory sharks like great whites or, you know, more curious species like the blue shark, they're actually just that. They're just curious and, and, and then they just kind of go about the rest of their sharky day. So there, there isn't really much to fear at all when you when you see a Baskin shark. That, that brings us on nicely to Maya Bambrick's question, yeah. which was, how can we tackle the stigma and fear surrounding sharks among the public? There's a million dollar question for you there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, it's a really, really good question because it's a fear and a stigma that's been around, you know, we always say that Jaws was like the catalyst for this back in 1975, but it actually was happening before then. So there were a couple of um, scientists right from... The beginning of the 1900s up until 1950s who coined this term rogue shark the rogue shark theory which is the idea that you get these random sharks that just suddenly decide they're going to terrorize humans <laughs> essentially was the whole theory and i imagine that's where the idea for the book came from and um, by pete eventually that's the one that inspired jaws and then obviously you had Jaws, which has this enormous shark that seems to be completely hellbent, uh, terrorising this tiny little seaside resort town. And it instilled a lot of fear in people. And, and that's kind of that coupled with a complete lack of science communication around sharks over the recent decades has, 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 has really cemented this kind of this fear and the misinformation that surrounds that's around sharks so it's 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 really really hard to shift but there are a couple of th ways that we can actually change perceptions so one of them is to do our best to communicate the science that we know now and communicate what we know about shark behavior and especially shark behavior around humans communicate it in a way that grabs people's attention so one of the unfortunate things about shark attacks is that that really grabs people's attention it's very easy to tell a headline where a surfer's been bitten by a shark, but it's not so easy to sell headlines saying that sharks really aren't that bothered about you at all, <laughs> you know. But there are some really cool videos, actually, that have been... This is why social media is so great, because there's a lot of videos that have gone viral. So there's a couple of reasons behind why a shark might bite a human. One of the theories is is that it's a case of mistaken identity. So that's a really popular one where you've got a surfer on a surfboard and it looks like a seal from below, essentially, and the shark mistakes it for a seal. So that's one of them. The other one is curiosity as well. So it's the idea that, you know, a shark really can't come up and feel you in the face with its fin or it can't exactly look at you and figure out what you are. So like the easiest way for a shark to figure out what you are is to use its mouth. So a lot of people think that bite is to kind of test you and see what you are. And in the majority of instances, the shark actually goes, but no, I, no, that is disgusting and, and, and swims away. But the unfortunate thing is, is that if it's a great white shark, they've got such a powerful bite that it, it can result in a fatality. So it's kind of like communicating what we know and being extremely transparent about it. And doing so in a way that grabs people's attention in a different way. So the brilliant thing about sharks is that they are so weird and wonderful, as we've already described. So, you know, there's over 40 species in UK waters of shark and ray. 
there's over a thousand species of shark and ray across the world, all with, you know, very weird and wonderful adaptations. And I think that is really, really what can hook people in when they start to learn about these animals and how amazing they are. So as well, you know, sharks almost have superpowers. They've got extremely heightened senses. They're incredible hunters. And then you get ones like the Baskin shark that are big, gentle giants. Um, have really cool adaptations to help them feed in different areas. You've got deep sea sharks. We could do a whole podcast episode on deep sea, sh- deep sea sharks because there's some amazing ones. And then just to show how important they are as well to the ecosystem and to, you know, the wider health of our planet. You know, sharks are, have a really, really integral role in the marine ecosystem. So I think that's one of the ways that we can change change perceptions about sharks. And also shark tourism is a very double-edged sword. I've spoken about this recently on the podcast that I have. We talked about shark tourism being a force for good if it's done right. So you'll see these pictures going around on social media now of people in the water with shark. And, you know, say, for example, like the Baskin shark, like the videos that we take, you see the Baskin shark literally just passing people by and not bothered about you at all. Or if you look at videos of the blue sharks down south, and you'll see the blue sharks being curious and maybe coming and butting people with their noses, but then they'll disappear off away. And I think that really, really helps people to see that different side of sharks and that they're not bothered about you at all. So I think social media will also have a big role to play as well as communicating the science and promoting how what sharks are actually like as opposed to sort of like the Jaws idea. Jaws didn't do sharks any favour, I think. The author Peter eventually he he yeah. has I think he said before he died that he did regret some of the stuff that come from Jaws in the end didn't he didn't he do some work you know to try and counteract that I seem to remember on it there is a lot of damage that Jaws did I mean even just the fact that that you know t- those two notes that two note melody which is now so synonymous with sharks just kind of like instills this this kind mm. of sense of impending danger <laughs> is like in itself a bad thing you know. You get children running around going dun 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 dun, and they've never seen Jaws. God, imagine working in. You worked in an aquarium for a while. You didn't have to stand by the sharks, listening to people making that noise every time they came through the door, did you? Sometimes. Oh, sometimes God, we had like a we had a shark tunnel, and you know one of those those tunnels, and you could often hear people doing it in there. Yeah, but I think the like in just in general, like the more that people get to know about shark, and the more that we promote how also easy it's going to be for them to die out how how quickly we're going to lose them because you know we've got 71 percent of sharks and rays have declined since the 1970s and three quarters of shark species are threatened with extinction and it's just the very fact that there are species there that we we haven't really discovered yet that's just completely mind-boggling that we could lose without it's just like the insects in the rainforest right you know there's, there's species that we don't even know we're about to lose, if that makes sense. So it's kind of flipping the message from sharks as things to be feared to sharks as things that need our help and we're actually the biggest threat to them. So the reason that sharks are declining is because of overfishing driven by human activity, essentially. Or that that is the primary reason, amongst other things. So yeah, a shark is so many more times likely to be killed by a human than a human is to be killed by a shark. There's that rather eye-opening stat, isn't it? Single figures of people, just about double figures sometimes, killed by a shark each year, and then we kill millions of them. Yeah. You know, which one's a dangerous animal? Hit six million a year or something ridiculous like that. But yeah, the, you've got more chance of dying from a jellyfish sting than dying from a shark bite. What's the famous stat? That you're more likely to be bitten by a New Yorker than a shark, statistically speaking, or something like that. <laughs> There's loads of them. There's loads of them. You're more likely to win the lottery. You're more likely to be struck by lightning. You're more likely to be hit by a car. A million times more likely to be hit by another driver than you are to be bitten by a shark. And I have heard a lot of people use the argument, oh, yeah, but you're on the roads all the time. You're not always in the sea. But no, it's 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 just very, very highly unlikely that you do get fatalities caused by sharks. And and that's the kind of information that we need to get out there and need to need to promote. But the beauty of social media now is that you can correct the kind of tabloids when they run a story like that. So that's sometimes one of my favourite things to do is when they're talking about Baskin Shark is to rewrite the headline for them <laughs> and change the narrative. I have noticed it changing, at least in the UK, towards Baskin Sharks. I have noticed it changing a little bit. And I think that is partly thanks to the pandemic. I mean, the pandemic was awful for so many reasons. But one of the the silver linings, if you like, 
was that people started to get more interested in the wildlife that was actually on our doorstep and start to try and learn more about it. And we're actually seeing it more because they went away over summer when the Baskin sharks start to arrive to our coastlines. The Baskin sharks typically around between June and September, classically. In some places around the UK, they're there a bit earlier and a bit later. But in general, you know, people were around more and seeing these enormous sharks and kind of wanting to find out more about them. And more people were coming on, you know, tourism trips, or say, out with us or out down to see the blue sharks that would normally not go on trips like that. And I think that's really where you start to get a big shift in public perception is when you get the people who maybe aren't aware of sharks in British waters and then, you know, maybe go on a trip that they wouldn't have necessarily gone on in the first place. And then they go and tell their friends that they went and swam with this enormous shark and, you know, they were absolutely fine. And it makes people want to find out more about them. And then once people have found out more about them and they're interested and they're engaged, that's when they'll be um, motivated to protect that animal or fight for its protection. So the kind of more awareness that we can spread and the more information that we can spread to counteract the misinformation and social media is a fantastic tool for that, then, you know, the better. And that's where we might start to see that shift in perception happening. But it is, you know, I believe it is happening already with the hard work that uh, organisations like the Shark Trust are doing and like the Save Our Seas Foundation are doing that I work with that do exactly that. So they're very, very much focused on changing public perception and raising public awareness of the species that we that we have. From one issue with shark to another, we've got another question from Tom Hadley on Twitter says, how might rising sea temperatures in the coming decades change the shark species that come to UK waters? For example, is it likely we might see species present in the Mediterranean appearing around our coasts? Which leads towards the great white shark, because I remember a few years ago, there was a story someone reckoned they caught one, and it was a poor beagle, I think it was, from memory. Which does look quite similar, to be fair. Yeah, it does, yeah, it does. And then someone photographed one leaping out of a sea that looked suspiciously like South Africa and said it was off the UK. And I think two days later he did admit <laughs> he took the photo of South Africa for, and for a laugh. Sent it to one of our, I cannot be more sarcastic, high class tabloids. <laughs> one that's an astronomical object that we orbit around. <laughs> I think it was from memory, which is not exactly high quality. So can we expect, well, let's start with that one, shall we? What global warming, do you think we might get great whites eventually? Well, to be quite honest with you, there's been a few scientists that have said they're surprised great whites aren't here already um, because we do have the right conditions for them. The water temperatures off the coast of South Africa, where they're, where they're typically found, before the orcas get there, but again, before the orcas got there, but again, that's another <laughs> another podcast episode. Um, you know, the water temperatures can actually be quite similar at, at certain times of the year. You know, the warm and sea temperatures might actually stop that from happening, essentially, mm. because it, 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 we don't know whether they'd be able to tolerate um, those higher temperatures. So in terms of people being afraid that great white sharks are suddenly going to flock to UK coastlines and we're going to have to worry about, you know, great whites in our waters, it, they could be already here. The fact that they're not here shows that it's possibly quite unlikely that they're going to start to show up. But we could see other species from the Mediterranean, you know, things like black tips, hammerheads and, and sand tigers from the Mediterranean. But the fact is, is that we don't actually, A, we don't know enough about how sharks will tolerate different bodies of water to say for certain that they're going to come as the sea temperatures rise. And B, like I mentioned earlier, sharks are threatened across the world from overfishing. So the chances are, as the years go on and as the temperatures rise, we're going to see less and less sharks in general. So whether we would see sharks come to our waters um, is still very much a question mark, a question hanging in the air. So, you know, A, would they be able to tolerate the different conditions? And B, are we going to be seeing less and less of them anyway because of the threats that they're facing at the moment? So like I said earlier, you know, three quarters of shark species are threatened with extinction from overfishing. So there's a couple of factors to consider when you're answering that question. Rising sea temperatures, you know, don't necessarily automatically mean that new shark species are going to arrive. But, you know, it might happen. We might see different species that we're not used to. It completely depends on what happens with their prey species as well. So the sharks aren't just going to come here for a little holiday. You know, they've got 
they often follow where their food source goes. So it'll very much depend on what happens to the fish stock. And what is happening that we do know has been happening for the last 50 years is that plankton species are showing a northward shift in general. So a lot of the species kind of that we have already are retreating northward. So they're trying to move away from this warmer water and go into colder water. And you're getting a lot of warmer water plankton species brought up from the south. And we know that is already happening. So that's going to affect the species that we have here. Um, so species like the Baskin shark, for example, that are plankton feeders, they might actually shift in response to that. And then you might have species that are feeding on. So, you know, it's not just uh, Baskin sharks that feed on plankton. That's why you get a lot of the fish species that we have. And so you're going to see a change in the distribution and the you know, the different types of species that we get around our waters if that continues to happen. So yeah, so that, that'll affect the species that are already here and that might influence what species then come into our waters as well. So the prey has another thing to do with it too. But essentially, there isn't really a straightforward answer to that, to that question, unfortunately. It's kind of all like, we're going to have to, we're going to have to wait and see what happens, basically. Because it's similar, the seabirds, the sand eels are getting exactly. affected, aren't they? And they think that's making them decline. I mentioned the basking sharks. Is, I've read suggestions that, because in Cornwall, the the sightings have dropped off a cliff, haven't they? That's a mm. bad pun there. I think um, more but, of them um, are back this year. I think they've it, had more of them this year. Yeah, this mm-hmm. year they seem to be back. But there was some suggestion that maybe the plankton's moving north because they seem to be more further north than mm. in the south. But... We'll, we'll talk a bit more about basking sharks a bit later. It, c- it could be, but um, something that happens with basking sharks as well. So this is something that we've been asking ourselves mm. at Basking Shark Scotland too, because we've had quite an unusual year where we've not really seen that many. The areas around Colin Tyree, the Sea of the Hebrides, where we work is one of the hotspots for them in the UK or in the world even. So it's, it's, it is very unusual. But we have see, been seeing some of them that are just further down in the water column. So, like I said right at the beginning of the podcast, sharks are fish. They don't necessarily have to come up to the surface to breathe. The only reason we see basking sharks right at the surface is because that's typically where the plankton itself concentrate. But this year we've had quite an odd year in terms of weather. So we've had we had quite a cold spell at the beginning of the year that might have messed up that kind of sequence of events. So you have like a phytoplankton bloom and, and phytoplankton is little organisms that can basically make their energy from sunlight. So like plants, but not all of them are plants. And then you have the zooplankton bloom that follows that. And the zooplankton is basically what the Baskin shark is feeding on. So if there's a disruption in that kind of process, then it sort of throws everything off. And that includes everything from the fish to, you know, the fish to the sharks um, to other species that depend on these plankton. And so we did notice as well that seabirds, the seabirds were generally nesting a little bit later as well this year. And also what can happen is if you have a, a long period of very settled weather, then the, the water can stratify, which means it basically separates out into, into layers. And we think that possibly the plankton has actually just got stuck or is just all concentrated in a layer that's deeper below the surface. So it's just the Baskin sharks, they're still there. They're just not quite at the surface this year. You're basically, because you have, with the ocean, that's the beauty of the ocean, right? You, you don't know what's going on down there most of the time. It's not like kind of a, a terrestrial environment where you'd be able to see, oh, maybe the, you know, those flowers didn't bloom or, you know, those trees have been cut down. Under the ocean, we really don't know what really what's going on. We can just sort of see what's going on at the surface and possibly how far we can dive down. So really, a lot of it is guesswork. With the Baskin shark, you know, they spend the majority of their time actually down in deep water and they only really come up to the surface to feed on the plankton. It could very well be that the plankton is just further down in the water column, and that's where the that's where the sharks are. Or it could be that they've that the the plankton's actually just shifted to a, another place, and they're actually somewhere else. We we really don't know. <laughs> they are hiding somewhere and probably doing the dirty as well, because that's where we think they mate is down deep. But I'll talk about that later on. <laughs> and we've got one more reader's question or listen reader's question. Is it a reader question on this podcast? Le- listener question, I suppose. Gabby from Wild Screen Festival asks, I have a shark question. What are the latest success stories about sharks around the UK? Any positive conservation news or species thriving where they were once threatened? Yes, that's a really good question. So I know there's a lot of doom and gloomy news stories around at the moment, especially due to the environment, especially to do with the marine environment. Um, 
but there are some conservation success stories to do with sharks in UK waters. I keep talking about the Baskin shark, but the Baskin shark is one of them. So believe it or not, uh, the Baskin shark used to be really extensively hunted in the waters of UK and Ireland. So they've got this enormous oily liver. It can be about a quarter to a third of its body size. And in that liver is an oil called squalene oil, which some people might have heard of, shark oil. Uh, So back in the day, it used to be used as everything from an energy source to mainly kind of like a source for oil lamps but now it is used quite heavily in things like cosmetics and lubricants as well um and the baskin shark because it's you know a very relatively slow moving species they hang out at the surface they're not really that bothered about boats at all really they're very easy species to harpoon and to exploit essentially so there were really really successful um baskin shark fisheries around you know our west coast uh, and the coast of Ireland as well. I've looked back at some of the records and they they were fishing about a thousand Baskin sharks in a year. So it was very, very extensive, um, hunted them to almost near extinction. And the last Baskin shark fishery actually closed in 1997. So that recently, so not that long ago at all. Um, so we are thinking that the Baskin sharks that we're seeing now, I should have mentioned this at the beginning, but a lot of shark species are typically very long-lived and they're very slow to reproduce so they're quite slow to recover from exploitation so we think that the baskin sharks that we're seeing now are only just recovering from all of that heavy exploitation you know a couple of decades ago hopefully we are seeing more of them in uk waters so that that in itself is a conservation success story that they've kind of been brought back almost from almost from the brink and then recently, just a couple of weeks ago, I do believe, um, the UK government actually banned the import and export of shark fin products to the UK, which was um, the result of a lot of brilliant campaigning by you know several organisations and a lot of people on social media and you know, a lot of public pu- petitions and things. There are lots and lots of threats to sharks. So finning, basically, for people who aren't familiar, is the practice of removing fins from a shark before it. So essentially, it's a very typically a very wasteful practice. Shark fins are a highly sought-after product on the global market. They're used in something called shark fin soup, which has a lot of cultural relevance um but it's it's you know it's a very lucrative market you can get a lot and lot of money for powdered shark fin and it actually drives a lot of this over exploitation of sharks around the world and up until a couple of weeks ago the uk was still importing and exporting shark fin products although it was it was more regulated in our waters they were still trading it so it's a very big step in the right direction um but there are still a lot of other things that need to be done so sharks aren't just you know fished for their fins they're also fished for meat they're fished for oil they're fished for their skin a lot of people might be surprised to hear that it's quite funny because you can speak to a few people on the street and you know they'll be absolutely disgusted that people eat sharks in other parts of the world and you say well you know, actually, what if you knew that dogfish was in quite a lot of fish and chips? So we also have historically eaten sharks as well. So, you know, there's quite a few things that need to be done when we need much stronger regulations on the shark fishing industry in general. But it is very, very, very positive um, that the UK government did put that ban in place. It's kind of like a, a it's a big win for um, shark conservation in the UK. So... So yeah, so they're they're kind of two pieces of, of of good news that I can that I can think of, which is which is really exciting. Glad you mentioned the shark in fish and chip shops because is it it's rock salmon's one of the things they call it, isn't it? Rock salmon and I can't really... They call it a few different things. So there's rock salmon, there's rock eel, there's flake as well, and hus might be the other one that people have. Hus is the one I was of. thinking of. Yeah. So that's what it is. It's shark, isn't it? Yes, a dogfish specifically, spiny dogfish specifically so the spiny dogfish is a really cool species that actually has one of the longest gestation periods of a species of shark the gestation period is basically the time it takes from the embryo being fertilized to actually giving birth to the baby shark and it takes them 24 months at the gestation period so they carry their young for up to two years which is incredible but they are a globally threatened species and a 2019 study from some scientists at the university of exeter they did a dna sampling on shark products from fast food restaurants basically and they found that 
the majority were actually spiny dogfish. The majority of the kind of products that are sort of very loosely labelled as husk, like rock eel, rock salmon. And that actually goes against our own regulations. So it's thought that they were kind of likely imported from places like the EU. But yeah, so so believe it or not, sharks are consumed basically on our doorstep from your local fish and chip shop. So yeah, just be just be very careful <laughs> with what it is that you're eating from there. But yeah, we, we definitely need more accurate labelling so that people are aware that that's actually what they're consuming but um yeah you mentioned the dreaded phrase baby shark there oh, um so apologies to everyone else has got it stuck in their head like me sorry. um <laughs> i'm sorry i do apologize <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a curse of being a parent or grandparent <laughs> i think now it's quite fascinating because a lot of people don't realize a lot of sharks give birth to live young but they also might have seen their eggs on the shore might they and not realized the mermaid's purses and stuff yeah, the mermaid's purses, yeah. So sharks have basically three main reproductive strategies. So the first one is, is live birth, which is the fancy scientific term for that is viviparous. The second is um, oviparous, which is laying eggs, basically. Um, and so when people are walking on the beaches, they kind of look like there's lots and lots of different types. So all different species have different uh, different shapes of eggs and different sizes of eggs. They're very leathery in appearance um, and they typically look like a bit of seaweed because what the female shark will do is when she lays the egg, she'll typically lay it where it's going to be camouflaged. And a lot of them look like pieces of seaweed or pieces of kelp. Some of them have really long curly tendrils on them. So like little curly pig's tails that are used to anchor them to the seafloor so they don't kind of go floating off where they're really vulnerable to predators. And yeah, we do typically find them sort of washed up on our beaches. And one thing that people can do if they do find these egg cases is you can report it to the Shark Trust, basically. So they have a citizen science scheme where you can report what eggs you've found. And they've got a really, really cool ID guide online as well that's really available. They've actually got an app as well, I think, where you you can report your findings and they'll help you ID it and things. So yeah, you can get uh, tiny little uh, cat shark egg cases, which are about, you know, the same length as your finger or just smaller. Or you can get big flapper skate eggs, which are kind of like almost the, the length of your head. Yeah, you can get a crazy different amount. Uh, flapper skate, I didn't mention actually, but they're a very cool species, a very large species of skate that lives in deep waters, kind of like off our coastlines. And we really don't know much about them. They're a very elusive species but but yeah long story short you can get all these egg cases that are washed up on the beach around the tide lines around the strand line and it's a really fun activity actually if you fancy it to go out with a bucket and pick up all these shark egg cases but there actually is a sort of in-betweeny version as well so the third strategy is let me see if i can say this oval viviparis which is basically when the the mother still has eggs but it hatches inside the mother and the young are effectively born live and in in those instances the eggs aren't as tough they aren't as leathery because they don't need to be because they're not they don't need that sort of protection they're not going to be outside the room so there's kind of three main strategies that sharks use to in 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 reproduction basically yeah and they don't mention in the song that the ones that hatch inside the mum don't sometimes they eat each other don't they and there's like one or two come out at the end yeah it's a pretty <laughs> life as a shark in general is just pretty brutal so mating is really not very romantic at all so i expect you know that there'll be a lot of maybe birders listening who you know birds have these really lovely you know mating dances sometimes or courtship rituals sharks don't have any of that mating is very violent and then also you get sharks that eat each other in the womb <laughs> so you get in uterine cannibalism it's called and then even when they're born there is no level of parental care at all so basically the these baby sharks have to be sorry i'll, I'll stop saying it they have to be completely ready pups is what they're called they have to be completely ready to go so you know they're they're really really left to the elements so there's not a lot of, of, of cutesiness and and sort of romance and you know, lovely parent-child relationships in the shark world. <laughs> no. Quite brutal. Yeah. I've been reading something about that. Like within a few minutes of her giving birth, she if she's one, it's lunchtime, isn't it? Yeah. So some sharks actually have... So there are such things as shark nurseries. So places like mangrove forests and tropical waters where the female shark will try and lay her eggs or, or give birth to her babies as near to there as, as possible. And that's to stop other sharks from feeding on the baby sharks basically as soon as they're born. <laughs> 
Oh, protected. Brutal world being a shark. The brutal world. I haven't even got into uh, how brutal shark mating is. Yeah, they're very bitey. <laughs> very bitey. And then also the males can flip over the females. It's something called mm. tonic immobility. So they flip over the females. And what happens is the female enters this kind of almost like hypnotic trance state. So a lot of scientists will actually do this when they're researching the shark, basically to make it less stressful for the shark. So it's not like kind of thrashing around. So they'll just turn it upside down. And the shark just goes, ah. but basically a lot of males do that to the female. So make of that uh, what you will. <laughs> yeah, because the killer whales do it to sharks as well, don't they? Uh, killer yeah. whales, sorry, orcas do it. To, I have to say killer whale for the first time in years. Uh, orcas <laughs> do that to the sharks as well, don't they? To, oh, amazing. Yeah. Oh, there's so many things we could talk about. That's the problem with it. I think as vague as the words as we could yeah. be here for hours. I mean, we haven't even touched on their sixth sense, the electro sense, have we really? Have we even mentioned that? Have we have? They can sense ele- electronic field around all animals or from the nerve. You explain it. I can't do it. <laughs> I know what I mean. <laughs> can, sort of. Can, kind yeah. of. So basically kind of all animals, all living things basically emit some sort of electrical impulse. And sharks can detect that. Um, they've got little pits in their skin called ampullae of Lorenzini. I'll probably be mispronouncing that as well. But ampullae of Lorenzini is kind of how I say it. And they're like little gel-filled pits. And basically they can detect electrical impulses in the surrounding water using these gel-filled pits, basically. So it's, it's almost like a sixth sense. So they can tell from that basically where something is in the water in relation to them. A lot of times they'll use that when they're in deep water, so they can't really see that much. And they'll also use it to detect things that are sort of hidden in little burrows or little uh, gaps in the rock or hidden underneath the kelp yeah it's a, it's it's very cool so i was talking about kind of like shark superpowers earlier that is one of their superpowers before we finish let's talk basking sharks i know they're your favorite we've actually mentioned them quite a bit already unsurprisingly because they come <laughs> quite a lot of british shark if anything they're, they're the one most people have seen they're the one i've seen certainly uk waters anyway Mm-hmm. Why are they your favourite? Why are they my favourite? Well, they're not actually my favourite species of shark. I maybe should maybe oh. shouldn't say that, but they are the one that I've worked the most with. Yeah. So, like I say, I'm a wildlife guide. I live on the west coast of Scotland, and I take people in the water with basking shark. That is one of the jobs that I do. And the basking shark got its larger cousins. The largest species of shark in the world is the whale shark, and it gets a lot of attention because they're very beautiful. They've got these lovely spots on them, and they're you know they look quite graceful and you see all these big beautiful videos of people swimming alongside them and the baskin shark is kind of like the grittier northern version <laughs> essentially <laughs> so they look a little bit gnarlier they look a bit more prehistoric and like i said they are just complete gentle giants so there's really not much going on upstairs at all and we don't know much about them so like a lot of shark species we really really don't know that much about them at all so i can pretty much count the amount of things that we know about the basking shark on one hand we know that they come back to the same places every year to feed so they come back up to the surface to feed we know what they feed on they feed on little copepods specifically a genus called Calanus. they prefer the Calanus copepods and we kind of vaguely know where they go after that. So we know that they go down deep after the season is finished. And we know that they sort of kind of disperse all over the place. So some Baskin sharks have been found to hang around the British Isles, but other Baskin sharks have been found as far as the Bay of Biscay and the Azores. So, you know, they can travel quite large distances. And we're guessing that they're, they're pretty long lived. But outside of that, <laughs> we really really don't know that much at all so we don't know where they breed for example we don't know where mating occurs we we're guessing it happens down deep down below the surface but we you know we don't really know exactly where it happens we also you know there's only been one account ever of a baskin shark giving birth and that was from one of these uh, shark fishermen that had harpooned a female towed her up to the surface and he was towing her back into shore and five live pups swam out of her. So, you know, from that one account, we've kind of deduced that Baskin sharks have litters of up to six pups, and it's over with Paris, so the, the young hatches inside the mother and is effectively born live. So, you know, a lot of its life is absolutely shrouded in mystery, and we're finding little little snippets out as the science advances. So a paper came out really recently, actually, you know, about a month or, or two months ago, which for the first time has filmed Baskin sharks in deeper waters. And there are actually six individuals that are kind of off the coast of Col. And 
we've deduced from that that they likely are mating down there because there's huge great big aggregations of these baskin sharks and it's down at like you know you're talking like 77 meters deep but my favorite thing about it is that there's a little image of two baskin sharks and they're just like touching fins down deep and so the suggestion is is that that's Aww. like a pre-mating behavior so i've just completely made that up in my head to be like they're holding hands, you said they were holding hands. <laughs> yeah. yeah so i do i do love i do love the baskin shark i've got a huge soft spot for them but my ultimate favorite species of shark is the pocket shark which is a deep water species of shark that has it's called the pocket shark because it has little almost like skin pockets underneath its pectoral fins so they're kind of like the fins on the side and these little pockets are basically filled with bioluminescent fluid so it's essentially got glow-in-the-dark armpits which i just think is like the coolest thing ever so yeah um so yeah i've got two two favorite species of shark there but the baskin shark will always have a soft spot in my heart as well and it should do for everybody because it is a species that we have right on our doorstep you know they come to uk coastlines every single year and i just think it's the the best thing ever that we have you know the second largest species of shark in the world you know right in our right in our back garden i don't think we can top a shark with glen dark (laughs) armpits so that's probably a good place to finish other than very quickly if people want to see basking sharks top of my head it's Cornwall Isle of Man sort of your region of Scotland is that the best places so typically so you're right with Cornwall and the Isle of Man the best place to see them up in Scotland is the kind of the Hebrides really like a collection of islands but basically the Sea of the Hebrides is the best place to see them and our company is called Baskin Shark Scotland what we do is on the tin, essentially. <laughs> and and west coast of Ireland as well, isn't it? Yeah, that's where a lot of them were were this year. Actually, is is just off Cork on in, in Western Ireland. So There's someone that's been a guest on this podcast, Kian, living there at the moment. I think hopefully he's seen one or spotted one. I have to ask him next time I speak to. Him. Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Isaac, thank you so much for coming on. It's been absolutely fascinating. I count myself as someone that thought they knew a lot about sharks, but I've learned a lot on this episode. So thank you very much. If people want to find you on social media, what's the best place to find you? The best place to find me, I'm on Instagram at IslaDawn92. I'm on Twitter at Isla underscore Dawn. And I also work very closely with the Save Our Seas Foundation too. So I run a podcast for them at the moment which is all about sharks called the whole tooth and people can find that on on all of their podcast apps so basically someone sends in a question to us every episode and we gather together a panel of marine experts to answer that question um all about shark uh, and rays so yeah so that's where that's where people can find me if they if they would like to i'm always happy to chat about sharks as well yeah i'm gonna go run upstairs after this and look for that on itunes i wasn't aware of that podcast so i'll add you to my um british wildlife podcast list as well on twitter so people should be able to find it there too so that's good thanks yeah they've, we've, we've only just started but yeah we've got some some really awesome guests on this this first season so excellent stuff okay then guys well, i think that's it from us thank you again Isa, for coming on and i'll see you all next time bye for now thank you for listening to the uk wildlife podcast if you enjoyed this episode then please do subscribe and leave a review for us on apple podcast or whichever podcast service you use you can follow us on twitter at uk wildlife pod or one word or on instagram at uk wildlife podcast and like us on our facebook page uk wildlife podcast and you can also post to the uk wildlife podcast community group If you would like to share your wildlife news or sightings with us on Instagram or Twitter, then please tag us in the post and use the hashtag UKWildlifePodcast. And you can now support us through our Buy Me A Coffee account, which you can find at buymeacoffee.com forward slash UKWildlifePod, where you can give us a one-off bit of support or join our membership scheme. Head there to find out more. This episode was edited by Neil Phillips and music is by Oscar Henderson. You can find him on Instagram at oscar.creates.